So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the passage that David so beautifully shared with us just a moment ago. Matthew chapter 27, and we'll look at this section from verses 62 to chapter 28, verse 15. I call this our Easter sandwich. I don't know about your tradition at our house. The tradition is that we, uh, we always have ham on Easter. We have turkey on Thanksgiving, and it's kind of anybody. We, we have curry at our house at Christmas, and then Easter is always ham. And so the nice thing about ham is that tomorrow I get to come to work with a wonderful ham sandwich, you know, with the, with the, with the mayonnaise and the mustard, and those two big slices of Wonder Bread, you know, and that big old thick slice of ham in the middle. Well, this is an Easter sandwich. Because on either side, we have the story of two groups of people. And in the middle, we have the story of a third group of people. But I want to start out by making a statement that may be a little bit unusual for us to use oftentimes on an Easter day. And that is the fact that I want you to know that I am a sinner. And you are a sinner. You and you and you and you. All of us together we are sinners. And I know that's not what we hear often on a happy Easter sort of sermon day, but the thing about it is if we don't begin to understand where we start from in our lives, we never can really understand how beautiful the story of the resurrection is. We are as lost in our sin as those people during the sinking of the Titanic in those lifeboats out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in the depth of the darkness of night wondering how in the world they would ever survive a freezing night in those North Atlantic waters, huddled together on a little lifeboat, sharks circling around wondering what is their future. And all of a sudden, off in the distance, they heard this low thrumming of an engine. And then pretty soon, a beacon light goes scanning across those black waters, and a voice calls out, Ahoy! Any alive? He starts to say, Yes, here, here we are. And, this, and the, beam, the beam, come, beam comes and focuses on your boat. And you see the side boats coming off, the Navy personnel coming in, grabbing your lifeboat and pulling it back to the main ship. And you're climbing up that rope ladder and falling over onto the deck. And you're handed a hot cup of coffee. And if you don't drink coffee, you do that morning. And they wrap you up in a dry, warm blanket, and you say, I'm saved. I get to live while thousands around you died. That is our condition in our sinfulness. Lost, hopeless. And we meet that hopelessness and that lostness in this story today. So I want to ask you a question, and I want you to hold on to this question for a few minutes, because at the end of our time together, I'm going to try with God's help to answer that question from the text that we have read today. Here's my question. This morning, right now, where you're seated, in your deepest heart of hearts, is there something in your life at which you feel like you are absolutely failing. Maybe it's a bad habit, a sinful pattern, and you say, I've tried, I've tried, I've turned over a hundred new leaves, and I think I finally got it conquered, and I fall flat on my face one more time. I'm just hopeless. Maybe it's a relationship that's dying 
and there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe it is a financial issue or a health issue or some other issue in your life, and you just say, I don't know what else to do. I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried. I don't want you to raise your hand, but in your heart, I want you to say, yeah, that's me. This morning on April the 16th, 2017, I feel as lost as that little lifeboat in the middle of a dark ocean. I'm going to show you in just a few moments where I believe the Bible tells us we can find the solution to that. And you probably already have a hint to where I'm going to go with it, but I want you to see it from this particular text. Because you see, all of us are broken. All of us in our sinfulness have been broken. And all of us need to know the solution to our brokenness. We see it right here at the beginning of the passage. You look at these guys, I call it the unbelievable disbelief. Unbelievable because it is hard to fathom how hard these leaders fight to maintain their disbelief. Given all the things that they are told in the passage that was read, that they still maintain their refusal to believe. Matter of fact, this morning, while probably most of you were sleeping, we got three o'clock or so, I, I just decided I would compile all my little note cards and make a list. Sherry, this is what I was doing when you and I were texting this morning. I was making this list. Of all of the amazing, ironic evils that were going on in this passage, let me just show you some of them, okay? Look right at the very beginning of what David shared with us in just, a, just a minute ago. In verse 62, the next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Stop right there. The day after the preparation day was the Sabbath. What in the name of all that is holy were Jewish leaders doing in Pilate's court on the Sabbath day? That was their day of rest. They were not supposed to do any kind of work on that day. They were supposed to stay at home or be in the synagogue. And yet here they were standing in front of Pontius Pilate on the Sabbath day. How ironic is that? These were the religious holy men, and yet look at where they are on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath day. And then you notice when they speak to him, verse 63, it says that they said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. That word, sir, in the Holman, I think in the ESV, maybe some other translations, really is the word kurios. Kurios is the word for Lord. In Matthew's gospel, it is only, until this point, it is only used, only used for Jesus, for God the Father, or some symbol representing them like in a parable or something. But here these religious leaders who said no one is kurios but God now give that title to a Roman governor. What in, what's going on here? Where is their loyalty? Are they saying, well, you know, I mean, we've got to show we're good Roman citizens. We've got to show we're, we're good subject peoples. We're not disobedient. We're, we're doing what, what, what we should and, 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 and being loyal. Maybe it was kind of a reflection off of what happened just a day or so earlier when they said, we have no king but Caesar. Away with this man. But what a strange title for religious leaders to be using for a secular authority. And, and by the way, what are they so worried about? It says that the, what they said to Pilate was, verse 64, give orders that the tomb may be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come, steal him and tell the people he has been raised from the dead, then the last deception will be worse than the first. 
well, now wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Do we remember where these disciples were just last night? They had scattered to the four winds from the Garden of Gethsemane. They were running for cover. They were hiding for their lives. They didn't even come to the cross except for John, maybe Peter, we're not sure. But the rest of them were hiding, terrified that they might be next. So really? Are they really worried about these disciples coming and stealing his body? See, I wonder if they were wondering what this wonder worker was going to do. He had stood up publicly and said, you destroyed this temple? In three days, it'll be raised up. Six times in Matthew's gospel, he had publicly declared that in three days after his death, he would be resurrected. And they're thinking to themselves, he fed 5,000 people, a few loaves and bread, you know, and fish. Calm the storm. Oh, and don't forget Lazarus. We all know Lazarus. He was raised from the dead. And we heard there was a widow's son that was raised from the dead. And, and, and Jairus' daughter. And, 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 and the list goes on and on and on. I, I wonder what he may try to do. Could he really do this? And, and here's what's so funny about that. If they really thought there was a chance that he could, do they honestly think some Roman soldiers could stop him? It's like, are you kidding me? It's just so ironic, their, their, their desire to hang on to their disbelief. And then when you get to chapter 28, verse 11, it just gets even better. Because now, <clears throat> after the events that we're going to talk about in a minute and that we know so well at the tomb, it says in verse 11, as they, meaning the women, were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Did you get that? The very first people on the planet to hear the news about the resurrection of Christ were those religious leaders. The greatest news in the history of the planet. But for them, it was the worst news ever. How ironic. And isn't it interesting that they didn't cross-examine the soldiers? Well, what did you see? What did you hear? Tell me. Did you go in the tomb? Did you look yourself? What, what did you find out? They immediately devised a plot, a way to get this thing closed down. And what's so interesting is that by doing that, they themselves just pushed the truth, the reality that the tomb was empty. And by the way, before we forget, remember Judas Iscariot, who was given 30 pieces of silver to tell them something? Now they're paying men not to tell something. Isn't that an ironic twist on things? And so they make this cover-up story. But do you realize how diaphanous that cover-up story really is? They said, look with me just to make sure we remember exactly what it was they said. Verse 13, now listen as if you were sitting in a courtroom and you were the judge in a court of law, okay? Listen to what it says in verse 13. They told them, the guards that is, the originally told the guards, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. Now just stop right there. Do you hear? Do you hear what's being said here? Now imagine your judge and I come in to the courtroom and I say, Your Honor, that woman right there stole my television out of my living room while I was dead asleep in my bedroom. What's the first question the judge is going to ask? Sir, if you were dead asleep, how do you know it was her? 
You didn't even see her. So the whole story that the disciples came and stole his body while we were sleeping holds no water because how would they have known if they were asleep? That's third grade logic. And yet this is the story they're going to get caught. By the way, the very story about the thing that they hoped would not happen. And that was that the disciples would come and steal the body. By the way, if Jesus did die, which he did, and was buried, which he was, why hasn't anyone brought about any shred of evidence for a not empty tomb? All it would take would be one little bone or one piece of DNA evidence or something from a grave somewhere, but there's nothing, no evidence at all that the tomb was not empty. And let me just say this and then we'll move on. How realistic, honestly, suspend your own faith for just a minute and ask yourself, how realistic is it to believe that those 11 guys who had followed Jesus for three and a half years, walked with him, listened to him teach, heard what he had to say, his entire teaching, how easy would it be for them to violate the very moral teaching of Jesus himself? What kind of Jesus would he have been if he had stood up in public and said, after I die in three days, I'll be raised again. Then he went inside and said, now guys, here's what I want you to do, okay? When they kill me, I want you to sneak into the grave, take my body, go hide it somewhere, and then tell them I'm resurrected. Really? Was that the kind of Jesus we see in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and in the other Gospel stories? Of course it's not. And by the way, even without that, what about their own consciences? Surely one of them would have felt guilty for creating this horrific lie. And, and by the way, what, what's to be gained by lying? What would they gain by creating this story? Money? Oh, no, there's no money in it. Just ask the Apostle Paul. I mean, there's no, no money in being a follower of the risen Christ. Prestige? No, for the first three centuries of the church, the only thing you got for declaring that Jesus was alive was impaled on a stake and burned. So there wasn't a whole lot of prestige in declaring a lie. Surely one of them at some point would have admitted the fact that, okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. It really didn't happen that way. We just made it up. And if nothing else touches us, let me just ask one more question, one more irony about this whole thing. How in the world did those 11 men who were so terrified, so scared in Matthew chapter 25 and 26 and 27 turn into those 11 men in Acts chapter 2 that stand ready to give their lives for the gospel? The only thing that could make that happen would be the fact that they believed with all of their hearts that what they had seen and what they experienced was real. So we have two groups of people. We have these religious leaders who, to be perfectly honest and to give you all the credit they were due, Jesus was not the first itinerant rabbi to come along with some new teaching, okay? They were very open. Matter of fact, if you remember in, in the book of Acts, there's a time when they're talking about these very apostles and the man Gamaliel, the elder Gamaliel, said, look, let's let these men preach. If it's of God, it will succeed. If it's not, it'll fail. Don't you remember so-and-so, how he tried and it didn't work? They were very open. As long as they stayed in control, that was the key for the religious leaders. You can come in, you can teach, you can bring ideas, just as long as you remember, we're the ones who are in charge. They, were, had, they had no problem with Jesus as long as they could get Jesus on their terms the way they wanted him to be. 
And Jesus wasn't going to do that, now was he? And that's what made him so mad. He dared to say that he was not only equal with them, that he was equal with God himself. And then we have these Roman soldiers who obviously, based on the text, saw the angel, saw the stone rolled away, saw him talk, the angel talk to the women, so much so that they, I don't know if they fainted or, or I don't know, they just passed out, but they saw it. And they go and they tell the religious leaders, this is what we saw, this is what has happened. They knew that something unusual had gone on, something strange and something unlike anything they had ever experienced before. And yet for a little bit of gold coin rattling in the purse, they said, yeah, okay, we'll take the money and run. They should have been the first converse to Christianity, wouldn't you think? I mean, if you saw an angel walk into this church one Sunday and say, this is what God wants you to know, you say, well, you know what, dude, I have, I've been in a lot of churches, never been in one where an angel appeared. I've got to pay attention to this. But they didn't. Even though God was working in their midst, even though they could see him working, they turned their back on what they knew because they wanted the things of this world more than they wanted him. Well, time to turn the corner now and look at the, uh, at the third group, and that's these two ladies. I called this section uh, of, the, of the message the creditable incredible. Not incredible in the sense of bad, but incredible in the sense of wonderfully incredible. That Jesus really, truly rose from the dead to prove and to show us that death is not the last chapter in our stories. Death is not the final victor of our lives. And to show that his payment for our sins had been accepted by the Father, and now we would be accepted when we receive and surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Creditable, not because it can be scientifically proven necessarily, something even more important than that, and that is eyewitness testimony. Walk into any courtroom in the United States today, the number one most basic piece of evidence that a court loves to have is eyewitness testimony to the things that occurred. It may not be absolutely 100% faultless and foolproof, but it usually is enough, especially the preponderance of eyewitness evidence, to say, well, we at least feel like we can find in in this favor because of the evidence that has been presented. So what does Matthew do? Look at verse 1 of chapter 28. After the Sabbath, Sabbath is over now, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Now, what, what does that tell you? It tells you two things. Number one, we have a specific place and a specific time, not just a day, but a day and a time of day, and we have specific people who were there to witness. And you say, well, okay, Pastor, but what's the big deal with that? You don't understand. Christianity and its parent, Judaism, are unique in the whole religious world for being a religion that is based on historical events that occur. What makes it a religion is that we see God's hand in those historical events. But if you've ever talked to a, a Hindu, the Hindu religion is, it believes that time goes in a circle and things continue to repeat over and over. There's no linear sense of time. If you read the Quran, you'll find out that the Quran, although it is a historical religion, most of the concepts in the Quran are basically just that. They're philosophical concepts. They're not based on certain events that occurred at certain time. That's what makes Christianity and Judaism so unique in that, that Matthew says, no, you don't understand. On this day, at this time, these people were there. 
That's what makes it creditable. Because, let me just remind you, sorry ladies, I just got to throw this in. Please don't be offended. But in Jesus' day, in the ancient world, women were considered to be too emotional to be able to be good, credible witnesses in a courtroom. Remember, their testimony was not allowed in court. Only men could testify. Now I ask you, please, if I were going to make up a lie and I wanted Jesus to appear in my lie, who is the last person I would have him appear to? A woman. And not just a woman, but a prostitute, a woman that had demons in her. Which just only goes to show that it must have been a true story, because who would lie like that? That's just plain out dumb. And so Matthew places this story in its historical context. And then we have, look, an angel. Verse 2, suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, approached the tomb, rolled back the stone, and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning. His robe was as white as snow. The guards, now make sure you read this sentence, lest you think I made it up a minute ago. The guards were so shaken from fear of him, which means they saw him, that they became like dead men. But you know, the angels didn't care about them. Not, not didn't care about them. He doesn't even pay attention to them. They're over there, you know, doing whatever they were doing. And Jesus, I mean, the angel talks directly to Mary Magdalene and uh, what's the name of the other woman? Oh, the other Mary. The other Mary. Now, this is how I know that this angel was the patron saint of all Southern Baptist pastors. You know why? Because there's three points in his sermon. Look at what he says. Don't be afraid, because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples. See those three points? Don't be afraid. Come and see. Go and tell. Go and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. These women don't understand everything that's going on, now do they? They were going there probably just to, to weep, maybe to help anoint the body. Some we hear from one of the other Gospels. Add some ointment or, or some, some spices to his burial shroud. They really didn't understand yet, but then you know what? That's okay. The angel spoke to them. He went, came for them to move that stone so they could see that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. How did Jesus get out? We don't know. But like David said in his prayer, it wasn't Jesus in there going, Hurry, because somebody let me out, bro. That, that's not, no. But lest we think, oh, well, now wait a minute. Okay, so we don't really have a Jesus. We just have a story that he, we know where he's not but we don't know where he is. Can you just imagine somebody, here's Matthew writing his, his biography of Jesus, and he's going, okay, I'm setting him up, you know? He's not here. He's been risen. Go tell his disciples. Now, verse 8, so departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. I like that phrase, don't you? With fear and great joy. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm bowing before the eternal God of the universe, I'm a little bit nervous. And if you're not, we need to talk about your relationship to the eternal God of the ages. Because even though, I mean, don't you remember in The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, you know, they're talking to Mr. Beaver, 
And keep saying, but, how, but, is, he, but is he frightening? Is he, is he, is he scary? And Mr. Beaver said, well, of course he's scary. He's a lion. Of course he's fierce. But he's also very kind. But sometimes we get so wrapped up in God's kindness, we forget with whom we are dealing. I hope there's always just a little bit of trepidation in our hearts when we come before the God of the universe. When we become before his son, who is the maker of heaven and earth. But they had great joy. They didn't understand everything but the angel. And so here we are. We've got this scroll, and we're reading it for the very first time. We're going, well, yeah, I'm not sure now. But guess what happens next? Well, you know. But I'll say it anyway. Guess what happens next? Well, behold, look. Just then, Jesus met them, and I love it. I just love it, love it, love it. It just makes me laugh every time I read it. Jesus met them, and he said, good morning. He didn't say, ta-da, here I am. If I had been Jesus, I probably would have appeared to Peter or to Pilate or to Caiaphas, maybe, the high priest. I would have appeared to somebody that could have said, oh, my lanta, you really are who you said you were. But he appears to the women, and all he says to them is, good morning. It's like the Ave, if you know anything about the Roman world. Just, just Sharon and I went and saw um, Beauty and the Beast last night. You know that big first song, bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. That's kind of what this was. Just, good morning. Just a casual phrase. Good morning. Okay, Pastor, we got it. Go on. All right. So what did they do in response? Now, I love theology. You know that the theology of, about Jesus Christ is called Christology, Christology, teachings about Christ. You do not have to go to the letters of Paul to understand the dual nature of Jesus Christ. You see it right here in this verse. Do you see it? What did they do? Number one, they grabbed his feet and they worshiped him. Now, they grabbed his feet. I got a question for you. Does Casper have feet? You ever notice ghosts? Ghosts never have feet. In other words, they grabbed something corporeal. Jesus was a corpus. Jesus had a body that you could touch, that you could grab, that you could hold. Remember John in his first letter? That which we have seen, which we have heard with our ears and seen with our eyes, that which our hands have handled and touched of the word of life. This proves to us that Jesus was not some apparition. He was not some psychological hallucination that they had. They grabbed him by the feet and worshipped him. There's only one that's worthy of our worship, and that's God. You worship anything but God, and you're an idolater. So what does that mean? They recognize that Jesus was and is who? You're asleep. Wake up. You're the last service. The 630 service supposed to be asleep. Who is he? He's God. He had to be God. They worshiped him. There's your Christology right there. Jesus fully man, Jesus Christ fully God. And Jesus says to them, look what he says. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Now don't miss the last bit of beauty here before we finish. He tells them again, don't be afraid. I mean, the ladies have got to pretty well be freaked out. This is the one we just buried two days ago. Friday afternoon, and now it's Sunday morning, and here he is. But they probably weren't the only ones that were scared, do you think? What do you think is going to happen when they get there and tell those 11 disciples, guess what? He's alive. They go, oh. And I ran in fear when he was arrested. 
I couldn't go to the cross. What am I going to tell him? What am I going to say? How can I apologize? How can I ask him to forgive me? Jesus, do you see what Jesus called them? Go and tell my brothers. My brothers. My brothers. He said, you tell them I call them my brothers. Because what does that mean? It means no matter how much we may sin against him, no matter how much we may offend his honor, no matter how much we may stray from him, when we go in humble repentance asking for forgiveness, he says, I love you and you are still my brother. You are still my sister. I forgive you. So that leads me to a question. We've seen three groups of people here in this story. We've seen the religious leaders who were okay with Jesus as long as they could have him on their terms. We saw the Roman soldiers who said, well, we know what we saw, but we got the wife and tater tots at the end of the day. We got to feed, so we'll just take the money and feel like we didn't see anything. When God was at work in their midst. And then we had those two ladies who were probably a little confused. They weren't exactly sure what was going on, but they believed enough to do what the angel said and go tell Jesus' brothers that he would meet them in Galilee. And here's my question. Do you see yourself in those three characters? I do. I'm just going to be honest with you. There have been times when I have wanted Jesus, but I wanted to be on my terms. Lord, really, can't I have my way just once? Can't I do what I want to just once? He said, only when you stop calling me Lord. When you stop calling me master, then you can do whatever you want. But as long as I'm the master, you'll do what I want. And here's the good news, Steve. I know a lot better. You do what's best for you. You think you know, but you don't know. I know a lot better than you. And I see myself in those soldiers. There are lots of times when, well, sometimes I'm so distracted, I don't even see that it's God doing it. Sometimes I recognize it is God, but now listen very carefully because be, you're going to resonate with this. I don't want to admit he's the one doing it because if I admit it, then I owe him something. I'm, I'm responsible to do something about it. You know what I mean? If God's doing this, I got to respond. So I'll just pretend like I just didn't even see it. I'm good. I'm fine. And then hopefully, at times I'm like those women. I'm trusting even when I don't always understand. Because you see, that's where we are. And I want you to ask yourself this afternoon, in the midst of all the other things you do on a happy Easter while the kids are out finding those bunny rabbit eggs and all that kind of stuff in the back lawn, ask yourself, am I ever like those religious leaders? Do I ever say, Jesus, you know what? I'd like to be calling the shots here on this issue. Or, you know, pastor's right. There's lots of times when I just act like I don't see you because I don't want to be responsible. I don't want to have to be accountable for what I've seen, so I just pretend like I don't see it. Forgive me for that. You know, it's one of the most... Interesting things I do as a pastor, somebody will come into my office and they will say, God has abandoned me, he has left me alone, I don't know why, but he will not listen to me when I pray, and now I've got these two jobs I've got to try to figure out how to balance in my life. I've got one job over here and one job over here, and I've got to work it out, and I'm going, whoa, 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 hold it a minute. Aren't you the one that for the last six months didn't have a job? And we were praying for you, and now you only got one job, you got two jobs. <laughs> and sometimes they'll go, oh, yeah, you're right. And then they're excited. And then we pray and they cry. And sometimes they go, well, now, come on. 
I mean, I guess you could say God gave me the job. Really, it was my talent. It was my abilities. It was my resume. It was my references that got it. We don't acknowledge the fact that God is always working in our lives, working with us. I didn't forget. I'm going to tell you this in just a minute. We're going to pray. What about that question a few minutes ago? What was that thing that you raised your hand about in your heart that said, I feel a total loss in this area of my life? I feel like a total failure. I try and I try and I try and I just can't fix it. I want to show you something in verse 6. If you still have your Bible open. If not, I think Al can put it up on the screen. In verse 6, the angel is talking to the women. And he says in verse 6, He is not here, for he has been resurrected. Do you hear the the tense of that verb? It's a passive participle. He has been resurrected. Do you know that in all the New Testament there is nowhere where it is categorically stated that Jesus raised himself from the dead? But again and again and again and again we hear that God raised him up, that the Father raised him from the dead. Go to the sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That one whom you crucified, God raised up and made alive again. Okay, so what's the big deal with that? Some of you will remember in the book of Luke, in Luke's, te- in Luke's biography of Jesus, he tells us something that Jesus said on the cross. Just before Jesus died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit or commend my spirit. Now, what was Jesus saying in that? Jesus was saying, I'm about to die. There is nothing more that I can do. Because what can a dead man do? Nothing. Nothing. You're dead. Jesus was about to die, so he says, Father, I'm going to commit my spirit into your hands. Now, when you commit something to someone, it means you trust them to take care of it while you're doing something else. When you get married and you commit your life to your, to your spouse, you're saying, I'm trusting my life with you, that you won't mistreat me. And so Jesus said, Father, I commit my life, my spirit into your hands, and then he breathed his last and he died. Even Jesus had something he could not do. He could not bring himself back to life. The Father did it. So whatever it is that is defeating you today, whatever it is that you feel like you just can't get victory over, he says, I know you can't, but I can. So I want you to fill in the blank. Father, I commit blank into your hands. That relationship, that bad habit, that sin, that sickness. Does that mean that God's actually automatically going to do it the way you want it? Maybe so, maybe not. But he will always do what's best for us, what's for our good and for his glory. But the key is to recognize the fact that we will never be able on our own power to get victory over those things. We must say, into your hands, I commit this relationship. I commit this sin. I commit this thing into your hands so that you can do for me what I cannot do for myself. This is the God of Revelation chapter 21. How many of you in the 11 years I've been on staff have been at a funeral that I, that I did, that I supervised? How many of you have been at a funeral I've done? How many of you went with me to the grave, to the cemetery? Have you been to the cemetery with me? Raise your hand if you've been to the cemetery with me. 
Okay, a few of you. Then you know, every time we go to the cemetery, I talk about the new earth. I talk about Revelation 21 and the new earth because I want people to understand that the end of the story is not heaven. The end of the story is the day when Jesus comes back, he is going to cleanse this planet and make it the way he originally planned it from the Garden of Eden on until we messed it up with sin. And he's going to wipe away all sickness and sorrow and death and crying will be no more. And we will live here for all of eternity with one another in a world just the way God intended it to be. Now that is good news. And that's not the sermon for today. But what I want to tell you is what happens in the very last verse that I always read at the cemetery. And after I tell them that and their eyes get real big, because they always thought they were going to stand around a, you know, a, a, a throne and play harps forever. How boring is that? Let me tell you, there's amazing life out of there ahead of us. But at the very end of that passage, it says that the one that was seated on the throne said, Look! I make everything new. That's our God. That's your God who says, you bring me that dead thing, that dead relationship, that deadness in your heart because of sin, and I will make it alive again if you'll just turn it over to me. And with that, we need to pray. Father, this is your word. Thank you for it. Thank you for the reality that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, not as a vindication of his innocence, not as anything except the proof to us that death is not the end of our story. Father, I admit before you in front of these people that I see myself at times in all three of those groups. I'm ashamed of that. I repent of that. But I want them to know they're not alone. They see themselves there too sometimes. And Father, there are things in my life that I feel a total failure at. And just like them, I am doing my best to commit it to you. Say, Father, into your hands I commit this thing. I can't do anything about it. In that area, I'm a dead man. But you can do whatever you choose. And I pray that you will. So, Father, in these next few moments, whatever it is that you're doing in our hearts, I pray that you will move in our midst, that you'll speak in Jesus' name. Amen.